Take your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, or page 951 here in our Bibles in the room. I just want you to know that as a Green Bay Packer fan, I am well aware that kickoff is about 10 minutes away, so forgive me if I check my phone occasionally during the message. We thought about maybe doing a little picture-in-picture thing up here. So if you are checking your phone, just remember we're talking about authenticity today. Don't fake it like you're looking up Bible verses or something, okay? (laughs) Just check your phone and and come on back to us mentally. We really do want to be a grace-based church. So what is a grace-based church otherwise? It all goes back to what we talked about last week, the cross. Everything we have spiritually is of grace. Our salvation and everything in our Christian life is a gift. Christ wrote the check, paying for every privilege we have with his death. So, what we're thinking about today is that therefore... Since everything we have is of grace, we need to be dispensers of grace, imitating him specifically in our relationships in a church. So we're continuing, as as Pastor Seth said, in our study of the core values of the church, and as the leadership team was putting that together in the recent years, uh, we came up with nine core values, just a little bit of an overview of those. First of all, the first three had to do with God speaking his truth to us. That's why we're gathering and looking at his word today. We know what he says. We know what's true. We know what to do because of his word. So we want to speak God's truth. Now we're looking at this section of living God's grace. How do we then live by grace if we are recipients of the gospel of God's grace? And so we're looking at the last two of those values today. And then uh, the next two weeks, uh, Pastor Seth and Pastor Nate will be looking at the three values of growing God's kingdom. So what are we supposed to be doing? So this is kind of uniquely, this is is us as a church. These are the things that we value. A little more uh, digging in just a little bit to remind ourselves. What were those truths? The Bible. We believe it's fully authoritative. The gospel needs to be kept clear and simple. Christ died for our sins and rose again, and the church, we need to meet weekly like this because we need those relationships as we take in God's truth and, and process and apply them. As we think about living God's grace, last week we were looking at how we must be motivated by God's grace, not a guilt, not a legalism. There's a, there's a motive is everything. Are we motivated by the grace of God to obey God? And then do we treat each other based on grace. And if we do, we can be more authentic and open because, hey, we're all in this process together. We can be more gracious to each other and allowances for, for where people are in their spiritual journey. We're looking at these last two today. And if you are one of those, like someone pointed out to me, that care about details in your bulletin, you'll see these are numbered four and five, not five and six. This is correct. The outline is not. We did not have math in seminary. So 
Just correct your outline if that bothers you. Grace-based thinking. Okay, in Philippians chapter 2, we're going to see how family and authenticity begins to work together. If we are grace-based as a family, in other words, we are allowing others to be growing, there can be more openness, authenticity, family authenticity. Isn't that what we all want in our human families? We want to be showing grace. Then we can be more open. When we're not showing grace, we're more defensive. The Litke family, hopefully, is a, a place of grace. The food is free. <laughs> they can, kids can stop in, grandkids, anytime. You don't have to text ahead. We're family. We, it, it, it's open. And then in our relationships, we find that we're the most open and honest with each other. Look, we, all the years that a family spends together, we, we know each other's strengths and weaknesses. And we sit around the table and, and talk and laugh. We can actually chuckle about, yeah, well, that, you know, that's him, that's her, that's kind of... And, and there's a relaxed atmosphere if there's grace, and then there can be more authenticity. And I just hope that as you think of being a part of Open Door Bible Church, you will more and more be experiencing grace and then authenticity. There really are insider privileges when you're part of a church family, likewise. I mean, there's, there's jokes that, that we know about, or there's things that have happened, and we share experiences, and we can begin to have a place where we can let down our guard. Maybe not with everybody, but with somebody, because you're part of a family. You can enjoy things together. I don't know if you ever noticed in our bulletin, this is kind of a half promotional piece as somebody first time here, they open up the bulletin. So we've had this little tagline a couple of years, this come and see, okay? That's, that's outsider talk. Come and see who Christ is. Come and see what the church is hopefully about. Just come and see. But when we get to our core values, we're beyond come and see. We're wanting you to understand, and we're wanting as a family to understand what is a value. What are the values of our church family? So uh, hopefully those, that'll be a part of how you move into relationships in a church that will uh, affect and improve your life, your whole life here on earth. In Philippians 2, we find the selfless family. The word family is not used in, uh, or, or any family metaphors, really, in chapter 2. But, boy, is it a good description of what a family really is. Verse 1, you'll notice, begins with four if statements. And if, in the, in the Greek language, sometimes means since. Like, it's assumed to be true. So let's assume these things to be true, Paul said. Four things. If you have any, any encouragement from being united with Christ. Or since you do. Or since any comfort from his love, since you have any fellowship with the Spirit, and since you have tenderness and compassion. That's the concept, that you have these four things. Then make my joy complete, Paul writes to his friends at the church in Philippi. Bring me joy, how? Four commands. By being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. What does that look like? Well, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, 
But in humility, consider others better, or yours might say more important, than yourselves. Each of you should look not only on your own interests, but also on the interests of others, which is really radical because we mostly, by default, think about ourselves. Um, the first one, the first encouragement in Christ, the first if or since statement, Paul was encouraged because of his relationship being in Christ. And keep in mind, he's just written chapter one. He's in prison, but he says, that's okay, because I get to tell the, the, the people that are guarding me about Jesus Christ. Verses 21, 2, and 3 of chapter 1, he says, I don't know if I'm going to live or die, but really that's okay, too, because if I stay here, I get to preach Christ. If I go to heaven, I'm with Christ. Do you see how being in Christ has encouraged him? Nothing can, nothing can shake him because he is in Christ. Number two, if there's any comfort from his love, could be Christ's love, probably a reference, I think, to the Father's love. So we all have in common that we're in Christ, Philippian church, and we all have in common that God is unconditionally loving us through every pain, every struggle, every worry. We all have that in common. Number three, if there's any fellowship with the Spirit, it's like, of course, you know we do, right? We all have the same Spirit indwelling us as New Testament believers. I don't know if any of you ever made a, a, a Christmas garland out of popcorn. Maybe it's more of an old-time thing. But you can take a needle and thread, and you can, you can thread several hundred kernels of popcorn, and you put them all together, and it makes a, a garland to go around. The, if you could picture the Spirit like that, it's just going up and down every row here. And every one of us is part of the same body because we all share the Spirit. Is there fellowship? Yeah, he says there is that too. And the fourth one is a little bit of a different uh, way of saying it. It says, if there's any tenderness or compassion, but again, he's assuming you guys do have tenderness and compassion for each other, right? The first word tenderness is, is kind of fascinating. The, the original language, it's really the word for bowels or gut, but in a good way. Because this is where you feel things, right? You're just kind of like, oh, I love that person, or ooh, I can't stand that. If there's any tenderness that you really have a, a loyalty for the people that you, you gather with, you know, on a playground, kids sometimes bully other kids. It could be because of some disability or unique physical feature, and they pick up on it. But you know what? If big brother or sister is there, they will race, almost always race to defend the sibling who's being ridiculed. It could be that the night before they were fighting like wildcats over the biggest piece of cake. But you disrespect my brother or sister and I will stand up for them. Do you have that kind of connection where you would defend one another? No matter where you even might disagree on some other, you would defend each other. Is there any tenderness and, and compassion? We've said before how as pastors, we notice sometimes when people are first like visiting or checking out the church or considering the church, as they talk to us, they would say, your church. And then there's that day where they say, our church. And you go, okay. They, they've understood that this is their church family. Paul is preaching to a church family. He says, you know what? Our identity in Christ we all have that as family. The Father's love, we all have that. The Spirit's knitting us together, we all have that. And you know what? We really do love each other. We have this family loyalty. So basically, he, 
He says in the next couple of verses, so act like it. So act like it, verse 3. Make my joy complete, like a dad. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Why is this a concern? There were rivalries, jealousies, resentments in the church family in Philippi. Go ahead to chapter 4, verse 2 here. He, 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 Paul dresses it head on. He says, I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. There's probably some issue they don't agree on, but agree in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So these two ladies have been actually faithfully serving Paul and the gospel there in Philippi. They don't get along. Makes sense now in chapter, going back to chapter 2. He says, please, please, practice your unity. Be like-minded how you think about each other. You don't look at each other and go, oh, that's why I don't like that person. How you think about them. And, and, and your love. In other words, taking the model of God's love for us, grace-based love. And have the same um, spirit. Actually, the, technically the word is soul. Have the same soul. Recognize we're desiring the same thing and therefore we are here for the same purpose, the four, four things. It's, it's like bring it all together. Get over the jealousies, rivalries, offenses and make my joy complete. Be grace-based. Make these generous allowances for the differences and forgive what's happened and Apologize if you made something happen. Accept their unique personalities, opinions, preferences. Because here's the mindset of family. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Kind of get over yourself, but in humility consider others better than yourself. I think the word better is, is better translated more important. Like that Look, look to a different aisle, a different row than you. Pick out some people that you know, but you don't really know enough that you didn't sit by them today, okay? Are they more important than you? That'd be radical. Francis Chan wrote a book, Crazy Love. I think that's what it means. That it's crazy, radical, to think that I would treat somebody else as being more important to me because I've always been the most important to me. But in family, others are more important if, if you've uh, had babies, say you're a mom, nothing is more precious to you in that phase of life than sleep, right? And yet there's something more important than sleep. The baby cries and you, you're up. So you consider them more important than you. And, and we're supposed to think of each other that way. It's, it, it is radical. It is, it is crazy. Another way of saying it, verse 4, that not only your interests... What's of concern or interest to them? Because family changes your mindset. Here's a good test of, of how well you know someone. Would you ask them to help you move? You know, that's, that's a tough one. But family, they have to be there. They're family. They have to help me move. They, they can have, you know, major health problems and be 95 years old, and they should probably help me move because we're family. 
Families do exceptional things for each other. All over the world, in fact, not just Christians. I think that's how God designed the family to reflect him. It must be the case in Christ's church. Many of you have, have told me in different ways that church family is uh, far more likely sometimes to show up for you than natural family. I was talking to my sister this last week uh, in Kansas, and she recently had a, had a knee replacement surgery. She lives alone, so I'm not much help to her out here. But she talked about how you know, a whole series of people would bring food and, and, and call her or stop by from the church, from the church. Lifelong relationships, and you, you are family. I see that a lot uh, at Open Door, but particularly as people have gotten to know each other, as you're involved in an adult Bible fellowship together or a small group or something, uh, you just know each other's needs, and so there's this automatic like, oh, we have to help with this or a meal or encouragement, send a note. And it's, it's a little bit sad sometimes when people who kind of keep about, you know, they're, it's our church, but they're kind of on the outside, Nobody really knows what they need, and, or a couple do, but they don't really know them. And so there's, there's this awkwardness. If we're on the inside, we need to reach out to them. But, but sometimes if you're on the outside, you've got to realize, I've got to make the investment to get to know people, to be close enough as we pray for each other and experience life together, going, these things happen more naturally. Not only your own interests then, Do you have friends at church that actually care about how your week went? In other words, you enjoyed something, they'll listen. You're struggling with something, they'll, they'll truly listen. They really, they're, they're really interested in you. you, you want, it's a small group, but you'll, but you'll find there are people who actually can be those friends that truly take interest in you. This is, this is the idea of a grace-based family. Every, every other relationship, it seems like, in life is transactional in some way. At work, you can be a helpful person, but you know if you help them, they tend to help you. You help a lot, you tend to get promoted, you get noticed. You know, it's all kind of transactional. And the idea here is that the way we take interest in each other is not transactional. It's like a flow from the cross right on through, and we can just keep paying it forward. Grace teaches us to care. So, what's interesting, Paul often, if you're kind of acquainted with some of his letters, he gives the doctrine first and then the application. In chapter 2 of Philippians, he does the opposite. He's just given us the application, now he's going to give us the doctrine. Verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. In other words, if you're struggling with really making others more important, well, let me tell you the doctrine of Jesus. In verses 6, 7, and 8 of Philippians 2 are, I'd say, one of the four best doctrinal passages on the nature of Jesus Christ. The incarnation, God became man. The others, I'd say, would be John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. But Philippians 2 describes uh, this amazing truth that God became man. That that, That comes from an attitude of selfless family who verse five six 
who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or kept or held on to. Instead, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Without taking a deep dive into the amazing doctrine, do you get the gist of that? Jesus always existed as God, had all the eternal privileges of the eternal attributes, omnipotent, he can do anything. He created the universe. Sovereign, he controls everything. Omniscient, he knows everything. Glorious, angels forever continually worship him. And he says, I'll give that up. I'll give, I'll give up those privileges for a time because I care about people. And so it says, he made himself, it was not something to be grasped. He says, I don't have to keep those advantages of being infinite. So he made himself nothing. You may have the translation, I like this, emptied himself. It's like he divested himself of some of the, the privileges, the use of some of his attributes. He never quit being God. He never quit actually having those traits, attributes in his essence, but he veiled or limited them. He says, I won't, I'm going to give up using them for a season and was made in human likeness, became a baby. As a baby, Jesus no longer had the use of his omniscience. He had to learn to talk. Learn the alphabet, crawl, then walk, potty train, adolescence. You know, as we think about Christmas, the idea of Jesus as a baby is a wonderful, snuggly truth until you remember actually having a baby. <laughs> and you realize what it was like to become man. But you see, God became man so that he could die as a man who was God. Because only then could he provide salvation as a gift by grace. Go through an unimaginably cruel death. But that wasn't the worst of it. To be weighed down with the weight of all the world's sin when you yourself are infinitely holy. But we became more important to Jesus than enjoying his attributes enjoying who he was. And so our core family value is that we value creating a healthy family relationship in the church based on grace and truth so we can serve in one another like Christ did us. If I look around, you know, I know that some of you know each other better than others. Some of you are newer. Some have been here many, a few decades or more. And uh, we won't all know each other well. We won't all serve each other well but we can all know someone well. And we can all serve someone sacrificially. We're connected. I would just, maybe just as a, a way to apply some of this, are there two things you can do this week that you wouldn't have done 
to serve someone, where you put their needs above your own. It could be some of the simplest things of texting, calling someone to encourage. Uh, maybe a prayer request you hear in the ABF today. Could be a small, meaningful gift. Could be giving them some time, helping them with something that you know about. Could be a cash gift. But where you say, they're more important to me for this moment, for this maybe token, or for this giving up this evening. They're more important to me than myself. Like Christ, Christ was never too good, too important to serve. When I was in second grade, I had my appendix taken out. Back in those days, that put you in the hospital for a few days. And uh, I'll never forget, probably mentioned it before, that Dr. Ratzliff, my surgeon, came to see me. You know, they got to do their rounds, right? And someone had given me a, a gift in the hospital of, of some, some army men, a bunch of army men. Kind of funny in itself, being Mennonite, but anyhow. I was playing with my army men. And Dr. Ratzliff pulled up a chair and played army guys with me. That's, that's, that's many generations ago, I know. But I, I just, I remember thinking, even as a second grader, that's my doctor. And he wasn't too important to play with me. Does grace prompt you to serve your family? Here. Turn to Acts 5. Page 886, Acts 5. As we go from family... Selfless, serving, grace-based family, we can then afford to be more open and authentic. Motivated by grace, we can be open and honest with each other. And as you, if you, you recognize that passage as we get to, you go, well, that's a weird uh, negative passage. But actually, that's deliberate. Uh, it's an example of what is not authentic. Because the opposite of authenticity is faking it. Faking spiritual life and, and spiritual maturity. Um, to get the, the context of the story, we have to really start in chapter 4. This is the early days of the church, 4 verse 34. Uh, we talked a couple weeks ago how it was an unusual time. Many Jews had come from all over for the Feast of Pentecost. God chose to send the Spirit and start the church for that feast. And so there was a hospitality crisis uh, in, in Jerusalem. People were staying with people. There was financial needs everywhere to get the church off the ground and all this interaction. So, verse 34 says, there were no needy persons among them, however, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Example, Joseph, a, Sip, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, there's a nickname, meaning son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So this guy was for real. Um, he, he does this amazing act of generosity. Imagine how inspiring it was. He, he sold an asset he had acquired there in the Jerusalem area, I guess, and he gave, the, gave all the money to, to, to the church to distribute to people who had needs. Uh, 
Generosity inspires generosity. But sometimes, sometimes one person's spiritual strength or act of service can make others jealous of the attention. Attention they receive. And that's what happened. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. So, continuation, same as what Barnabas had done. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold and after it was sold? Wasn't the money at your disposal? Uh, Just stop there. That means that evidently Ananias had said, I'm giving it all to the church. I'm giving it all. But he lied about it and they kept back part. But the point of verse 4, Paul, uh, uh, Peter's saying, it was okay, you could have given part of it, but don't lie about it. What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. God's judgment and great fear seized all who had heard what had happened. Then the young man came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. That gets your attention. Wow, God's direct, immediate judgment because he was pretending to be something he was not. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept it back. What about his wife? Verse 7, about three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. She also lied, and she also died. God takes faking spirituality very seriously. That would be a bottom line lesson. And yet it's every Christian's temptation. I want you to think I'm godlier than I am. I don't know how else to say it. But we, we try to put on our best front, right? What, what's the mental process that took this couple to conspire, to deceive? Pride is the core, of, is the core sin, I've often thought. Pride led to a jealousy, though, it seems, of Barnabas and others like him. People were admiring them, going, ah, look at them. They're amazing spiritual people. Do you recognize that seed of sin where you see others in the church family being appreciated for doing something good? And you think, I do good things, no one recognizes me. Next thing you know, we could be kind of worming our way into a little bit more recognition, maybe taking credit for something 
or letting people believe that we did something that we didn't, or maybe exaggerating our role in some ministry. So this begins to pollute our church relationships. So we have to recognize this. We get it. We're all competitive in life. Sports, music as kids, who gets the solo part, who sings the boring alto line, grades, so kids cheat, a little more recognition, some opportunity. Adult life, we keep up the comparisons and the envy and the, you know, our position in the company, salaries, houses, cars, clothes we purchase, all these things. It, we often try to buy things to fake success. As Dave Ramsey and others have said, we buy things we don't need. Can you finish the line? To get things. We buy things we don't we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't even like. <laughs> Find that? Yeah. If we don't deal with envy in the common areas of the competitive nature that we feel. We're going to have it in the church as well. We can import it to impress others. Don't fake it. Turn to Romans 12, page 920 here. Page nine, uh, Romans 12. This is a great pivot point of a great book on our salvation. That points us to being authentic, more open, honest, real, transparent, because of the cross of Christ. So after some 11 chapters of explaining to the the depths what grace is all about and our salvation being free and what Christ did for us, verse 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, everything we have spiritually, our position in Christ is of God's mercy, so offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Drawing on the imagery of the Old Testament sacrifices an altar where they killed an animal says it's like that give yourself wholly on the altar only you're not dead you're living so live differently verse two don't be conformed to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind you're you're supposed to be thinking living an entirely different way but it's all because of the mercy of god so everything you are spiritually is a gift from God. So what's there to brag about? There's nothing to prove. And thus there would be nothing to hide. So salvation's a gift. Last part of verse 2 says when you when you realize that then then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. So because salvation doesn't end with when you get saved and have your secure ticket to heaven, though you do. You now are a living sacrifice, and you can figure out what you're supposed to do with the rest of your life, what his will is. And so Paul says, let me use myself as an example to exhort you. He says, verse 3, for by the grace given to me, I say to each of you. So Paul sees his own role as an apostle as being grace. God just gifted me with the opportunity to serve you as an apostle. So as an apostle, by grace... I say to you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment 
in accordance with the measure of faith God's given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members physically, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Think of that. We all belong to each other. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. Not only is salvation a gift by God's grace, but the role God assigns us, the privileges, the ministries God assigns us are also grace. Christ, God accepted you through Christ with all of your sin of the past and future. Your salvation is of grace. The way he designs you is of grace. He knew all your strengths, all your weaknesses when he saved you and appointed you to be part of his family. He will now use your weaknesses and your strengths. And so you can relax. He knows it all. You won't impress God. So we might as well not try to impress each other. Verse 6, we all have different gifts. Uh, This is describing what we sometimes call spiritual gifts. A short version is that God has equipped every believer with uh, unique capacities to be effective serving the body. Unique capacities to be especially effective. There's a short list, a partial list here of some of those. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Uh, These are gifts the the body needs. Uh, Even though basically all of them were told to do, we all need to serve, encourage, show mercy, give. But some are particularly gifted spiritually to have more impact maybe than others. Who do you, I was thinking about Barnabas in light of verse 8. What was his spiritual gift? They called him son of encouragement. He was an encourager, and he gave this generous gift. Maybe he had the gifts of encouragement and, and giving. Then it made me wonder, wonder what the gifts were of Ananias and Sapphira. And we'll never know. Because they short-circuited God's plan by wanting Barnabas's gift, or at least his recognition. So we need to be who God made us spiritually and not try to imitate others that we might envy. The world says, you be you, often to defend sin. And God's word, though, is saying, you be you, how God designed you with the gifts and opportunities that you have in the body. And that will take humility, verse 3. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Kind of two key uh, expressions in verse 3. One is a a Greek term that's made of two things, think and high. So you're thinking, I'm here, everybody else is here. Or somebody else is here. Thinking highly of yourself. Instead, think of yourself with sober judgment. That's a word that means think with the word wise. So we're thinking high or we're thinking wise. In other words, an honest self-appraisal. When by nature we think high, I want a little more, 
a little more, a little more recognition. And it's the disease that pollutes every workplace, every bit of politics. It's always, I'm, I'm more important. I'm more powerful. No, think wise, honest. But sometimes we can so long, so long to be recognized as better than others that we begin to believe, we self-deceive, we believe, we convince ourselves that we're somehow we belong here. God's given you a place in the body, and the illustration is the physical body, that you know, each of our parts, you know, a lung and a knee do different things, but both are essential to the body. And altogether we make up a church that God wants to use in Port Washington and surrounding communities to take the gospel to accomplish eternal things. Humbly appraise who you are. Others, others will fit a certain place best. You will fit someplace else best. And others, certain opportunities are available to some, not to others. There's all kinds of things. But so what will, what will short-circuit and ruin all that is when we compare, we envy, we want this recognition. By the way, pastors are not immune to the scourge of envy and comparisons. In my graduating class in seminary, uh, some have pastored huge churches. Uh, one's written books that are in our church library. One was the president of Moody Bible Institute. Others have pastored very small, struggling churches. Others are in unnamed positions in some office in a ministry organization or missions. Some never found vocational ministry opportunities at all and yet could be honoring God where they are. And you just have to realize that God has placed each of us where he wants us. And if you're part of this church, you, you fit here in some special, unique way. Nothing to prove. And therefore, Nothing to hide. Go to chapter 15 of Romans. Acceptance of one another and transparency about ourselves. This is a tough one. Tough one for me, I know. Verse, uh, let's start with verse 5, 15.5. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ. Jesus, so that with one heart and one mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's an amazing uh, prayer expression. May he give you a spirit of unity as you follow Christ. Otherwise, we're an amazing mi mi mix of, of opinions and preferences, but as we follow Christ, we are absolutely unified. The other day I was uh, in Cedar Grove and I saw must have been like a second or third grade class going on a field trip, I think, to the park, okay? So you see all these little kids following a teacher to the park. That's the only way they're going to get there safely. In fact, she stopped, so I, I was just in the, in the way. So she stopped. What would happen if you told a whole class of third graders, go to the park? <laughs> now you've got a problem. You've got all kinds of dangers. And sometimes that's how the church functions. Go make disciples, and everybody does it their own way, and, it, and, it, and it's disaster sometimes. But 
Paul says, can, can you have a spirit of unity as you follow the teacher? Right? The teacher. He's the teacher. Follow Christ. Then we would have a spirit of unity and do it together so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's vital because otherwise you're going to want to be Ananias and Sapphira and get the credit. But it's not Barnabas, it's not Ananias, it's not you, it's not me, it's not the pastor of the big church or whoever. It is Christ that we seek to honor. And so the application is, as we think of others, accept one another, verse 7. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. The way we show grace to each other is what brings praise to God. He says, now that's a family. They have accepted each other where they're at. When, we're, when we watch our, our little kids or grandkids grow up, it, it's just so fun watching them develop, right? They, they, they're, they're, they're walking and they trip and fall. We pick them up and we cheer them when they, when they walk a little further. And they're learning words and they, they, they mispronounce words, but they gave it a try. We figured it out. And we just rejoiced at every step of the progress that they make. That's a family. And rather than looking at each other with such critical eyes, why do they, why do they still do that? Or why do, they shouldn't be doing that? We were talking about grace last, last week as far as we have to understand that everybody is, is a spiritual kid. And so accept one another where they are right now. Not that you want them to be there. Not that you might not notice something that's really you can pray about. But accept one another like Christ accepts you, which is incredibly, because think of how immature every one of us is compared to Christ. And he accepts us. And so that's why we can be more transparent. James 5, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Whatever it means to confess our sins to one another, it's not, a, it's not a priest thing, is it? It's not like one person's supposed to hear all this. It's that, that we begin to know each other, that we can be open. Now, it doesn't mean you broadcast or brag on your faults or share details of your sin for shock value. That's weird. It means that with some discretion, knowing who and where and when, we can open up. We can even risk a little bit and, and be more transparent than we've ever been. And that takes humility. Confessing sin and asking people to pray for us. Because, in fact, we do need the prayer. And whoever we're sharing with needs the model of transparency. We're a family, and because we're a family, we can be more authentic. We value humility and transparency as we grow in faith. So the only reason we exist as a church is because of the grace of God. He paid for it all at the cross. Because he wanted to form a forever family of his that he would spend eternity with. And while on earth... We would be the ones unique among all of this globe who would actually really get along. 
with the generosity of accepting and showing grace and apologies and thus forming a team who would, while on earth, do the stuff that would really matter forever to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know how we all need uh, more humility about ourselves. You know how easily we are tempted to uh, pretend, portray uh, a godliness that might not be real. Lord, I pray not that we would care so much about what people think, but we would simply walk in alignment with you and recognize uh, core attitudes or pride that are affecting the way we see ourselves and the way we see others so that we can be truly dispensers of your grace and to accomplish and communicate that grace to a world in such great need. In Jesus' name, amen.